Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. As we continue in Luke chapter 23, 36 through, or 26 through 43, I believe. Each one plays his part. We're going to look at the second part of this message as it comes from last week. Last week we started off with the poem, All the World's a Stage. And all the men and women merely players, they have their exits and their entrances. Peter is preaching that after Christ ascended to heaven, that these events were all part of God's plan. We see this here on the monitor. For truly in this city, Peter preached, there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All of these men, all of these actors we have been spotlighting these last week or so are just mere actors playing their part in God's cosmic plan to redeem man from the curse of sin and death. Today that spotlight is going to be four more actors as we look at the crucifixion of Christ. Last week, We considered the four actors that Luke spotlighted in the trial of Jesus. That was Pilate, Herod, remember the crowd that asked for Jesus to be crucified, and then Barabbas. And though he is found innocent of all the charges against him, the verdict had already been set as Jesus is condemned to death to placate the religious leaders and the crowd's thirst for his blood. We're in the last few hours now of Jesus' ministry here on earth. Luke is almost finished with this gospel. His aim was to give evidence that Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus has demonstrated his divinity by exercising his authority over the natural and supernatural worlds through his miracles, through his healings. He has proven his authority over sickness, the religious leaders, the temple, and even the interpretation of Scripture. He has declared that he is the Messiah, the long-awaited promise anointed one of God, the Savior of Israel. Yet, despite all of this evidence, Jesus has been rejected by those he was sent to save. He has been falsely accused and condemned to die the death of a criminal. Yet, even in this horrible, vicious sin, we find the will of God continuing. Scripture tells us that the Messiah would be despised and rejected by men, that he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins or our iniquities, and that upon him was the chastisement that would bring us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All of this is showing his love for us, that while we were still sinners in rebellion against him, Christ died for us. We call this the humiliation of Christ. And the humiliation of Jesus continues as he is now being mocked, beaten, and in our passage today, crucified and continually ridiculed and mocked. Father, we come before you this morning as we look at this passage of scripture. 
one that we normally look at during the Easter time, but yet here we are. Uh, your providence has us near the, uh, the incarnation, the celebration of your birth, but now we see the reason why you were born, to die for us. And not just a simple death, not a quiet death, but a very cruel and public humiliation, providing all that God the Father required from us, you, Jesus, provided. Be with us as we open up these pages of Luke. We thank you for Luke's testimony, for the work that he did in collecting all of these eyewitness accounts so that we may have confidence that Jesus is the Son of God. Father, I pray that you would just move within our hearts this morning, that if there's those, Lord, who are struggling, who are doubting your goodness, Lord, that you would assure them. Father, if there's those that might be struggling with their faith, that you would strengthen it. Father, if there's those here that need your grace, that you would grant it that they may come to know you as Savior, and above all, that you may be glorified. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The narrative of Luke now moves to Jesus' crucifixion, starting with the journey from Pilate's uh, throne to Calvary, where he will be nailed to the cross. Look at with me at Luke chapter 23, we're in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Remember, this is the time of the Passover. And Jerusalem is filled with people, uh, not only just from Israel and Judea and Samaria, but from other parts of the Roman Empire as they come, other Jews, to worship at the temple. So the fifth spotlight that we see this morning is on a man named Simon. Men condemned to die by crucifixion were usually required to carry the heavy cross piece of the cross. Not the whole cross, but just the, the cross piece, the one that would, their arms would be on. It would weigh anywhere from 30 to 40 pounds to the place of their execution. Scourged, beaten, bloody, and with open wounds on his back and on his chest and stomach, the soldiers would place a hardened rough piece of wood on his lacerated skin and muscles. The soldiers recognize that Jesus is too weak from his ordeal and he doesn't have enough strength to carry it. So they, they compel Simon who was probably just passing by with his two children. He's a Jewish man who is originally from what we and I, you and I know today as Libya, North Africa. They compel him to carry it the rest of the way up the hill. Interestingly, Mark in his gospel account includes the names of Simon's son, Rufus and Alexander, most likely because they were known to the Roman church that Mark was writing his gospel to. In the closing of his letter to the church of Rome, Paul greets, or writes, greet Rufus, chosen Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Luke records this man's name as more evidence of Jesus' crucifixion. Though propelled into this drama against his will, his name is preserved for eternity as he picks up the cross and follows Jesus to Calvary. <clears throat> the sixth spotlight that then Luke then puts his narrative on is on what we call the daughters of Jerusalem, or what Jesus calls or identifies the daughters of Jerusalem. Verse 27. And there following Jesus was a great call, a multitude of the people. 
and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So these were his followers. This is not the crowd that's crying out, crucify. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the womb that never bore and the breasts that never nourish. In others, for those who are never pregnant and those who give birth. They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Here we read that not every one of his disciples has abandoned Jesus, like Peter and the other 11. Jesus abandoned Jesus as some followers are now making their way and following him as on his way to Golgotha. They are not ashamed of their teacher, their master, their savior. They are openly weeping, openly in despair as they witness what is happening to him. Ignoring the taunts and the ridicule of the hostile crowd that are crying, and they are, they are crying and despairing of his intimate death. This is not how they believed or thought it would end. Though tired, weary, and in immense pain, Jesus takes the moment to warn them once again of the judgment that will be pronounced against those who have rejected him, particularly Israel of that time. The suffering, Jesus says, will be so intense that people will prefer to death than life. They would rather that they could just die then and there than to continue to live. The seventh spotlight now moves on to those who are mocking and mistreating Jesus in verse 32 as he's on the cross. Luke tells us that two others who were criminals were led away to be put to, to, be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, that's Golgotha, the place of the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you underline that passage in your Bible or highlight it? And they cast lots to divide his garments, speaking of the Roman soldiers. In verse 35, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. For if he is the Christ of if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Mockery, ridicule, maligning. <coughs> It was a Jewish custom to offer wine to someone dying to help them with pain. That's written in actually Proverbs chapter 31 where it says, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. However, the Romans, instead of offering him wine for his comfort, offer him wine to quench his thirst, but they spike it to make it bitter and undrinkable. Again, mocking his pain, mocking his needs. Again, this is prophesied in Psalms when the author laments that they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. 
Like David, Jesus receives no sympathy. In Psalm 69, David laments, as you see on the monitor, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Jesus is fully alone on that cross. Even the inscription above the cross, uh, this is the king of the Jews, was not one of respect, but of ridicule. It was Pilate's way of antagonizing the Jewish religious and political leaders in the claim of Jesus to be the Messiah. They also identified him with robbers who were deserving of the crime as he's crucified between two ordinary thieves. Again, fulfilling what was written in Isaiah 53, 12, that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. In Psalms 22, 18, this is in view. As lots are now cast for his clothing, seeing Jesus' undergarments and his robe, they, they typically would then uh, uh, fight for it or, or cast dice for it. But seeing that it was all in one good piece, they're trying to win and see who can have a dead man's garments. They're truly robbers. Ridicule him as he's up there still, they, as he's up there suffering, they're, they're gambling for his clothing. Demonstrating the evil in their hearts, the people, the rulers, and the soldiers all join together and mock and ridicule Jesus as he hangs defenseless on the cross. As if the illegal trial by the religious leaders and the mockery of justice by Pilate and the torture of the Roman soldiers were not enough, Luke records how these people add more insult to injury. These people were most likely traveling to Jerusalem for Passover. The cross was in full view as the public, on the public road leading in and out of Jerusalem. And they would see and they would be drawn to this spectacle. What's happening here? What is that noise? Who are those three men? They probably hadn't heard much about Jesus other than that he was wrongly or, or that he was accused of wrong of sin, of, trust, of, of, of being a social agitator and being a criminal. Again, this is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, where he says, But I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind, uh, mankind and despised by the people. All who see mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. The Roman soldiers didn't know who Jesus was. Maybe they had heard of him in the streets. They had no direct knowledge of his teachings or miracles. To them, he was just another condemned man accused of trying to absurd Caesar as their king, as their ruler. You got to remember these Roman soldiers, they were men of the world. They had experienced the hardness of battle and the starkness of life. They would have found enjoyment in mocking Jesus. They would have found enjoyment in beating and crucifying Jesus. It would serve actually as entertainment for them. It would be a, a break from the ordinary routine of patrol and mundane chores of a soldier's life. For so for them, they are enjoying the moment. Again, a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, where it says of the Messiah that he would be despised, rejected. He would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And one whom men hid their faces, he was despised and not esteemed. But then we go to the mocking of the religious leaders. 
These were the very men who should have embraced Jesus. Instead, they're mocking him. They're gloating over his sentence of death. They feel that they have won the day. They should have been the ones who championed him. Instead, they derail him. They mock him, joining in with the crowd. Yet Jesus, as you and I noticed last week, is silent. He doesn't curse them. But as you underlined and saw earlier, he forgives them. Every breath would have been a labor of effort and bring more pain, but yet he still says, I forgive them, or Father, forgive them. The eighth spotlight, the final spotlight, now then turns to the condemned criminals on either side of him, on the left and the right in verse 39. Join with me. <clears throat> One of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus. He joined in. Are you not the Christ? We've heard the news. Well, save yourself and save us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed, he goes on to say justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, whether these two criminals knew anything about Jesus is not known, other than they know that he claimed to be Christ. But in their distress, they choose to join in in the crowd until one of them realizes that Jesus is different. He is not like them. He's not a common criminal. He is not a guilty man, but a righteous man. This man demonstrates true repentance as he understands that he deserves his sentence of death and he pleads with Jesus for, not, for mercy. Not the soldiers, but for Jesus. And wonderfully, Jesus turns towards him and grants his request. Thomas Schreiner writes, if you're following me, no, Randy, I'm going a little bit off script. I'll be back in, to where I am. But Thomas Schreiner writes that none of the Gospels attempts to elicit pity by dwelling on the horrors of the crucifixion. As you see here, Luke is very brief. They are remarkably reserved and restrained in describing Jesus' suffering. People in the Roman world would know, of course, how terrible such suffering was. Perhaps you and I can think of how the word cancer strikes fear in people today when we hear someone has cancer or we hear that diagnosis from a doctor. But the word crucifixion was far worse since those who were crucified were hung on a cross, typically naked, for hours and, for, and far worse. Since those who were crucified were hung on a cross, typically naked for hours and sometimes days. One can only breathe by pushing up on one's foot. Insects, excuse me, would feast on one's blood. In addition, Jesus' body is already lacerated from his scourging. So as we come to the end of our passage today, we see that Jesus dies. But I want to look at it very quickly and just give you a little bit more information. Even as Jesus' crucifixion is very brief and to the point in Luke, God's plan is continuing. Each actor is playing their part in the humiliation of the very Son of God. 
Dr. Davis, many of you have heard this before, describes to us what would happen at a crucifixion. He writes, Simon first is ordered to place the cross piece on the ground, and Jesus quickly is thrown backwards with his soul's shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire, the Roman soldier, feels for the depression uh, at the front of his wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through his wrist, wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and he repeats the action being careful not to pull the arms too tightly across but to allow some flex flexion and movement. The cross piece then is lifted in place at the top of the, of the stipes and the titus reading Jesus Nazareth, King of the Jews and is then nailed into place. The left foot now, as you can imagine, Jesus on the cross, he is nailed by his wrist. The left foot now is pressed backwards against the right foot, similar to this way, with both feet extended with toes down. And now he is nailed, is driven through each arc or, or through the arc of each of his feet, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with the weight on the, on the nails in his wrist, excruciating pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms as they explode in the brain. The nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves of the wrist. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nails through his feet as he tries to lift up. Again, there is searing agony, he writes, of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, as the arms are fatigued, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles of the chest are paralyzed. In the intercoastal, the breathing muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up the lungs and then the bloodstream and then the cramps partially subside. Then he is finally able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. For three hours, Jesus continued with this pain. He experienced Hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain where tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down the rough temper of the wood. Then another agony begins, a terrible crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. One remembers again Psalms 22, where he says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. The wounds and crucifixion of Jesus 
are more than you and I can comprehend. But as we sung earlier, his wounds have paid my ransom. That pain and agony is what you and I deserve. Crucifixion was a horrible punishment reserved for the worst criminals and rebels. It was an agonizing death that could take hours. Death occurred through the loss of blood, cardiac arrest, or suffocation. It was designed to be public and shameful as the condemned was crucified and naked. Cicero, a Roman's philosopher, politician, and lawyer, remarked that crucifixion was the cruelest and most hideous of punishments possible. However, my friends, this was the plan of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to redeem God's children from the curse of sin and death. It was the innocent for the guilty, the final sacrificial substitute lamb offered for the sins of the people. And through the humiliation of Christ, you and I are delivered from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day from the presence of sin. To help us understand this passage, I want us to consider a couple of things. What can you and I gain from the crucifixion of Christ? First, is this is the final temptation of Christ. As you and I are looking at the ridicule and mocking, you see a final temptation happening. As you read the mocking calls, the challenges, and the charges against Jesus as he hung on the cross, they seem very familiar when you and I call the temptation of Christ in the wilderness with Satan. Look at verse 35 once again. The people and the rulers shout, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen ones. In other words, hey, if you are, you can do this. This echoes the call of Satan to throw himself or throw Jesus himself off the pinnacle of the temple so that the angels could catch him. Such a sight would cause many to see and proclaim his as, as, as the anointed one. Again, this is a shortcut to the Father's plan. Come off the cross if you are the chosen one. Could you imagine that if Jesus was to do so, what it would have done to the mouths of those who were mocking him and condemning him. It would shut them up. There would be silence as they would see as he comes off the cross in some miraculous way and they were to watch all of his wounds heal immediately. Could Jesus, could not God have chosen that way? Maybe, but he hadn't. Again, a temptation. Shorten this suffering and pain. You don't have to go undergo it. In verse 36 and 37, again, we read, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. This challenge echoes the call of Satan for Jesus to make stones into bread and to feed himself, putting his desires instead of everyone else. In other words, eliminate this need, quench your thirst, take care of yourself. And in verse 39, we read one of the criminals who were hanging, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This echoes, again, Satan's offer to give Jesus all the kings of the world if he would just fall down and worship him. In other words, Jesus, abandon your mission, disobey the Father, save your life, and save ours as while you're at it. However, just as he did throughout his life, Jesus accepted 
the Father's full plan. He rejected the temptation of Satan and the, 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 the mocking challenge and rebukes. Even in his most weakened moment, Jesus embraced the humiliation and the rejection and the ridicule and the retribution that you and I deserved. If Jesus had stepped down there, had stepped down from that cross, if he had fallen into that temptation, if he would have said, okay, that's enough, there would be no blood of the covenant for the forgiveness of sin. There would be no ransom from the power of Satan. There would be no salvation. There would be no basis for healing, no kingdom to proclaim, no fulfillment of scripture, and no power over death. So Jesus drinks fully from the wrath or from the cup of the wrath of God for you and I. Secondly, as we look at this passage, we see the words of Jesus himself. As he labored for every precious breath during his humiliation, Jesus still took the time, the energy, and the strength to speak. In verse 31, as he is walking, as he is making his way to the cross, he warns his followers in verse 31, for if they do these things, speaking of the rejection of Christ, when the wood is green, excuse me, what will happen when it is dry? The actions and the attitudes of the religious leaders, Pilate and the Roman guards and the crowd, show the depravity of man's heart. In other words, if I am here and I'm green, he's talking about like a plant. If I am here and they can see me and if this is how they're going to react, what's going to happen when I am gone, when I am dead? It shows the depravity of man's heart. In Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10, we read, seen here on the monitor, that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. It's wicked, as it would say to King James. Who can understand the heart? But the Lord searched the heart and tests the mind. To every man according, to give according, every man according to his ways. Yahweh says, according to the fruits of his deeds. In other words, judgment awaits all those who reject Christ, especially Israel at that time, who had received the promises of God. John MacArthur notes that this saying was probably a common proverb, speaking of uh, what, when the wood is green and the wood is dry. It was probably a common proverb, meaning if the Romans would perpetuate such atrocities on Jesus, the green wood, young, strong, and a source of life, what would they do to the Jewish nation, the dry wood, the old, barren, and ripe? It's ripe for judgment. As you and I know, in AD 70, that would be what would happen. Yet as Dr. Schreiner notes, looking on the monitor, even at this hour, Jesus shows love and concern for others. Instead of or considering his own suffering, he forecasts a great sorrow that is coming upon Israel, both women and children. In verse 34, we see the surprising reaction of Jesus to his humiliation. When he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Which seems such a foreign concept to us, to forgive those who are openly mocking and ridiculing you and even torturing you. 
We know that Jesus had taught us to pray for those who persecute us. He taught us to love our enemies, but to forgive those who torture, mock, and seek our death. <clears throat> Jesus, however, understood what was happening and why. Again, Thomas Schreiner remarks that those who put Jesus to death can be forgiven since they act in ignorance, which means that they do not grasp fully what they are doing in crucifying the Son of God. But ignorance does not excuse the evil done. But the ignorant are given an opportunity to turn away from their wickedness. Continuing on, he says, seeing in the monitor, we should recognize that Jesus does not forgive them here, but he asks God to forgive them. He has a heart of forgiveness and mercy to those who put him to death. Stephen had the same spirit as his, as his Lord when he was killed. Hatred, revenge, and bitterness do not lodge in Jesus' heart towards those full of rage against him. That's the heart that you and I have to have to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us that God may forgive them, that he may give us the grace then to follow suit. The third words as we look at the words of Jesus is found in verse 43. When Jesus offers salvation to a repentant criminal. <clears throat> in verse 43, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Talk about a deathbed confession. Here, even in this chaotic, tragic scene, we see the Holy Spirit's wind blow as the man is drawn to Christ in his dying moments. He's drawn to Christ by, by the Father, and he's given a new heart by the Spirit implanted into him. This man received the one thing that all mankind needs, forgiveness of their sins. He recognized that Jesus is his Savior. His blinded eyes were open to the reality of Christ. As his eyes closed in death, they would reopen in the presence of Christ in paradise. What a wonderful passage. And it contains so much truth. The question, though, that you and I may ask is how does this apply to us today? How are you and I to think and act on these truths? How should it change my life? What promise, what commands are given in here? Well, I'd like for you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. And in this passage, Paul gives us the answer of what is accomplished at the cross, the humiliation of Christ. How does the crucifixion bring us hope? Colossians chapter 2, begin reading with me in verse 13, silently if you would. He goes on to say, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In this passage, we read this. We see a problem. The problem is that you and I are dead. We are all dead in our trespasses and our sin. Like Paul says, all have fallen short of God. All we are like sheep and gone astray. We are all guilty. There is none that are innocent before God. 
The solution is that God made us alive together. That which was dead, he raised back to new life. He reconciles us to himself. How does he do that or what does he do? He does that by forgiving us all our trespasses of, of, making, of putting all of our sins on Christ. He pays that penalty. He does it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands that we must die. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And not only that, he took the record of debt, all that you and I have done wrong, and he set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. It can no longer be used against us. The result of what Christ did is that he disarmed the rulers and authority and he put them to open shame. He has humiliated those who railed against his son and now try to rail against the children of God because Christ is triumphant over them. Because of this, you and I are called to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow Christ. To finish up our message this morning, I want to show you how you can apply this to your life because of the humiliation of Christ, because of the, the passing of the final temptation, because of the words of Christ. You and I are to live our lives in such a way that glorify him. To do so, I want to go to the Heidelberg Confession. It's a question that the children have been taught. You and I sing it when we sing, My One Comfort. The question says, what is our only comfort in life and death? And you and I have to realize is that the world is looking for that solution to the problem of why life is so difficult. Why is it that suffering, why is it that bad things happen to good people? What should we do? What is the solution to that? And they look for comfort in so many different things. They look for drugs and alcohol pleasure experience, living their life and seeking happiness. But the only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what you and I must grab a hold of. This needs to be the model of your life. Again, as I've said before, if you're going to get a tattoo, get this tattooed on you. What is my only comfort in life? That I belong to him. I am not my own. So many of us are living our lives for our own pleasure, for our own agenda, seeking happiness outside of what God has given us. But Jesus didn't suffer that humiliation so we can dwaddle in those selfish, self, self, selfish pursuits. You see, it goes on to say that he has fully paid for all my sin with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven, which explains my hairstyle. In fact, all things must work together for my good and for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Do you have a desire to live for him? Is that your desire? Is that your comfort? Is that your pursuit? 
it was of the, of the criminal in, those, in his last dying moments was to pursue Christ and only Christ. As we sung earlier, your mocking voice would be heard among the crowd. That's who we are in this crucifixion story. What is our role in this drama? We were once dead in our trespasses. We were condemned to die. But because of Christ, we can be made new. Question two then asks this. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? How can this knowledge and this comfort that you belong to him and that you're not your own, how do you live that out? And that's where I think that you and I as Christians need to understand because we're not always doing this. It answers three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. I need to recognize that without Christ, I am totally lost. There is no joy outside of Christ. Secondly, he says, how I am set free from my, all of my sins and misery. You and I are now new creatures. Even when we sin after Christ, he says there's an advocate who prays for us, who is willing to forgive us. And thirdly, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. We're to live that out. There ought to be a joy in our heart no matter what happens into this world. You and I that knows that there's one comfort that the world does not have, that Jesus was humiliated for me. No matter what I face in this world, it can never compare to what Christ willingly did for you and I. Romans 6.6, 6, as I close with this, it says that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Because of the humiliation that Christ suffered, from the betrayal to the desertion, to the accusations, to the beatings, the mocking, the ridicule, to receiving those terrible nails, all of that Christ suffered for us, that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. The innocent for the guilty, so that we might become righteous before God. Is that your claim this morning? If you have not, then I pray, would you pray to the Father? Would you understand that he has drawn you today saying, come, come, drink of him fully. Taste and see that God is good. If you have done so, then put your face towards the cross and make a beeline towards it. For Christ has called you to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow him. May you find comfort and joy in the humiliation of Christ so that we could be free. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm going to ask Mandy to make his way up before we go to communion. And I just want you to take a moment to pause and consider the humiliation of Christ in a new way. What he experienced, what he went through for you and I. And then would you pray and ask the Holy Spirit 
how you should respond to the joy and comfort that's found in that humiliation. And may you find joy and comfort in the Son who willingly gave himself for us. Manny, would you come and close us in prayer and prepare our hearts for communion? We hope we you hope have you enjoyed this week's message. Of walking in faith. We encourage we you to share it with others. with others. If you have any, questions, have any or questions or comments, please email us please at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing time. to this May podcast. God bless you to learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.